Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DiRogatis, pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Codd. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. This week on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to be talking about one of the classic albums of all time on its 40th anniversary, The Beatles' Revolver. We've done these classic album dissections from time to time. I don't think in our new incarnation on public radio, but it's going to be a lot of fun to dive deep into the record, hopefully let you hear it in a way you haven't heard it before. Plus, we've got reviews of the new side project from Jack White of the White Stripes, The Tours, and the first solo album in 14 years from T-Bone Burnett. All that and Greg Cott's Desert Island jukebox pick. But first, as always, we have some news. New Day Rising, one of the greatest songs, rock and roll-wise, ever out of the state of Minnesota. Mr. Cott, we're going to open this show by saying hello to our new listeners on The Current in St. Paul and Minneapolis. It's it's really special for me to have our first national uh, show outside of Chicago beat Minnesota. I lived there for a bunch of years, and i got to say, it's the only place other than Chicago where I've ever had as spirited, passionate discussions some would call them wrestling matches, like those that Husker Du used to be involved in, about music with people. You know, at 7th Street Entry, at the 400 Club. Man, I'm stoked to be on in Minnesota. Yeah, it's a great music town, and it's great to have our first home outside of Chicago and BEZ be The Current, which I think is a terrific, we both think it's a terrific station. We, we visited there a few times. The playlist is awesome. I only hope that we can live up to the standards that they've set. <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill from here, is exactly. that what you're saying? All right. Pay to play, Kurt Cobain calling the record industry's number on that one. For the last 50 years, record companies have been paying radio stations to play records. There have been investigations, uh, the latest of which is one by Elliot Spitzer, the Attorney General of New York State. And he is lining them up and knocking them down. Last year, he got Warner Music Group and Sony BMG to admit that they had been paying radio stations to play records. $5 million from Warner Music Group in fines, $10 million from Sony BMG. Now, the latest to fall is Universal Music Group, the world's largest music company. They have agreed to pay $12 million to settle the accusations against them brought by Spitzer. Jim, this guy is doing yeoman's work here in sing- almost single-handedly exposing a uh, record industry practice that has been going on for decades. The Federal it's, Communications it's just, Commission is jumping in now to investigate the radio companies. It's amazing they haven't put a hit out on him yet, really. <laughs> I mean, the guy, he's like taking on the mobster mentality of the record companies paying off radio stations to play bad music in most cases. And now uh, he's also hinting that the next leg of this legal crusade is going to involve 
going after the radio stations because you can't have a briber without a bribee. Right. The fines, some people would argue, hey, they're not particularly significant given million. how extensive this practice is and how long it's been going on. But I think it's a, a really important step. I mean, they are on the record, three of the biggest record companies in the world now on the record admitting, yes, we have been paying off these radio stations. And maybe at some point in our lifetime, Jim, we will see fair and equitable play on commercial radio stations where records from independent record companies that don't have a lot of money to pay radio stations <laughs> to play their records might actually get on the air. I don't know about that, Mr. Cut, because that presupposes that terrestrial radio, uh, which is to say most radio outside of public radio, is going to continue. And that's not so sure, which brings us to our next story. Lou Reed loves the satellites, but there is no love between the major labels and satellite radio, at least according to this lawsuit that was filed the other day. Every week on Sound Opinions, we try to cover the ongoing extinction of the major labels, most of it coming via these ridiculous lawsuits against its customers or against anything that's threatening its business as usual. What we have now is the major record companies banding together under their trade group, the Recording Industry Association of America, to sue XM Satellite Radio. This lawsuit went down in federal court in New York on Tuesday. They are worried that XM's new piece of technology, the INO radio or INNO radio, a $400 device that's not only going to let you receive XM's 170 satellite stations, but record 50 hours of music. Now, the record industry is saying by being able to digitally record XM's programming, you are in fact getting a copy of whatever songs were played. And they're seeing that as a very bad thing. They're seeing that as very different from songs that are played on radio like we play them here on Sound Opinions or, or millions of other radio stations play them. They're seeking an absurd amount of money. The record labels want $150,000 in damages for every song <laughs> copied by any XM customer. XM now has 6.5 million subscribers who pay uh, about 13 bucks a month to hear the company's broadcasts. Again, the trouble isn't listening in your car or your portable receiver, but ha being able to record a program that you may have missed and listen at your convenience. Right. The record company is saying that's the same as getting a free digital download right. of a song. XM is already paying substantial licensing fees to play music, as any radio station does. The record industry is saying, wait a minute, having a digital copy is very different. And, you know, they may even be right here. I mean, you know, it is sort of like having an iTunes song, except it's not going to be as easy for people to get the song they downloaded as part of a program onto a CD or their iPod for permanent listening. But this is going to be a landmark case, another of a series that we're seeing in this ongoing paranoid legal fight that the industry has against new technology. Instead of embracing the technology, their answer is, let's sue it! <laughs> <laughs> Axl Rose, 
back again. <laughs> sort of. Maybe. Sort of, we think. Well, it's in the news again because he just played a couple of shows in New York. Now he says Chinese Democracy. That is the title song from the 15 years in the making next Guns N' Roses album. <laughs> 15 It's got to be some kind of record, Jim. Has, that, has, has anyone ever taken 15 years to make a record? I mean, I suppose you could I... say the Beach Boys smile finally took them that long to finish but... smile, yeah. But supposedly, Axl Rose has been working more or less continuously on this follow-up to the two Use Your Illusion records that came out in 91 by Guns N' Roses for the last 15 years with uh, essentially not a band so much as a corporation that he set up that includes Tommy Stinson, formerly of The Replacements, Robin Fink, formerly of Nine Inch Nails. Buckethead. Don't forget Buckethead. Although Buckethead (laughs) no longer in the current lineup. Oh, Um, my God. The band that is on the road does not include Buckethead. It does include Stinson. It does include Fink. Well, Guns Um, N' Roses hasn't been the same since Buckethead bowed out. Oh, indeed. Uh, Rose seems to think that the Guns N' Roses record he is making under that name, even though he's the only original member of (laughs) Guns N' Roses involved, will come out in the fall. Of course, he said this before. He went on the road in 2002 and said the record was about done. Here we are four years later. He's back on the road saying, hey, the album's about to come out. We'll believe it when we actually hear it. What would be the recording costs of a record that has required 15 years Endless amounts of you can you can bet plush studio time, yeah, and not to mention the cocaine and other drugs that have been consumed. It's gonna it's gonna rival like Heaven's Gate or one of those Hollywood flops. It's gonna make that twelve million dollar fine against the Universal Music Group look pretty paltry. I mean, fifteen years, all that studio time, somebody's got to be paying for this. It's got to be at least a mill a year. Yeah. Ridiculous. All right, Greg, before we move on, we've got a little bit of Beatles news. Paul McCartney and his second wife, Heather, have released a statement saying that their marriage is, uh, they've separated, the marriage is on the rocks. It's a sad thing. It only lasted about six and a half years, and Paul and Heather had a daughter. We wish them well. Uh, That's in the headlines. We're going to dig deep into McCartney's past, though. From time to time on Sound Opinions, we do these classic album dissections, hoping to help you listen to an album that you think you know in a whole new way. This is the 40th anniversary of the release of this record, and there is no place to start this discussion other than this song. That remains, 40 years later, one of the most impressive feats of recording technology ever. I mean, four tracks, and what you've got going on is this these organ drones and backwards guitar, these mysterious, strange uh, bird calls, Lennon singing as if through a megaphone, uh, uh, kind of this feeling of a thousand Tibetan monks chanting on a mountaintop. Not to mention the drum sound by Ringo Starr. I mean, ah. incredible. Uh, drums have never sounded like that. You can... You can, you know, gauge the sound of drums on a rock record as in before Revolver, 
and after Revolver, and specifically that song, Tomorrow Never Knows. In 1964, John Lennon and George Harrison first took LSD after they were unknowingly dosed by their dentist during a <laughs> dinner party at his flat. And uh, they had a bad trip. They made the mistake of driving around London at top speed in Harrison's Aston Martin, and it freaked them out, and they said never again. Why Lennon kept taking this drug, and, and mind you kids, we don't endorse drug use here on Sound Opinions, but we document it. <laughs> Lennon took acid again, and this time he had a profound experience. In December 1965, he takes this drug and he travels toward what Aldous Huxley, one of the greatest uh, writers about the acid experience ever wrote, the white light. He traveled toward the white light. He met God. And uh, he began the very next morning in that kind of crystalline clarity that follows a profound psychedelic experience, writing a song that he originally called The Void. It would become Tomorrow Never Knows after Ringo's – one of Ringo's pet phrases. Right. You know, Ringo had these phrases that he'd always walk around saying, well, it's Tomorrow Never Knows, guys. He, he was like the Yogi Berra of the Beatles. He know? really was. Brilliant <laughs> guy. Malapropisms and uh, so, so back things. in back in the 60s, I'm told. I've never tried this. Back in the 60s, if you wanted to have one of these spiritual uh, acid experiences, you would sit with a book called <laughs> The Psychedelic Experience that Timothy Leary wrote, uh, the great acid guru, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out, uh, paraphrasing the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetan Book of the Dead was an ancient text that helped you, as you were on your deathbed, travel toward heaven, gave you this, this spiritual roadmap toward heaven. Yeah, between and, worlds. I mean, yeah. before you were reincarnated, here's, here's what to do. Yeah, it's before <laughs> GPS, you know, positioning. You needed exactly. a, a, a map to get, you know, before MapQuest. And Lennon wrote these lyrics based on all of this experience. And it was the first song that the Beatles began recording for Revolver. Although it's the last song on their brilliant 1966 album, it is the song that started the recording sessions. Yeah, it's an amazing time for the Beatles. And and really, look look at the Beatles in, in, in 65, 66, uh, circa that era. In a sense, they were burning out a little bit. Uh, you know, they were still the cute, lovable, mop-top singing love songs. And meanwhile, along comes Bob Dylan writing about his interior world and putting that out as a pop song. And the Beach Boys beginning the, to do this incredibly uh, ornate, orchestrated well, pop with, with pet sounds. Right. What you could do with a pop song was changing. I mean, in 65, you had the Stones going from an, uh, an R&B and blues band, essentially, to doing a song like Satisfaction. Mm -hmm. The Who doing a song like My Generation, speaking about broader issues than just love and, you know, I, I broke up with my girlfriend. The Beatles realized that they, too, had to sort of you know, pick up their game, I think, in order to keep up. And I think we saw the first inklings with that with Rubber Soul. But that was more of a lyrical revolution for the Beatles. The words became uh, paramount in uh, Rubber Soul. I think with Revolver, here we have the sound revolution, the moment where rock music really changed as a sound experience, the use of the recording studio as a device, as, as another instrument in the uh, mix yeah, of the absolutely. record. Absolutely, as an instrument, as a canvas. Tomorrow Never Knows certainly illustrates that, and they began this project on four tracks, which is still incredibly, for people who aren't familiar with the studio, you know, now you literally have hundreds, uh, an infinite number of tracks, thanks to digital technology. Back then, it was still this big two-inch reel-to-reel tape, and uh, they're recording at Abbey Road, where these guys in white coats are walking around. <laughs> they're, they're the hired engineers. We're going to hear from one of them in a little bit as part of this discussion. Discussion. Mr. Jeff Emmerich, who was their engineer. George Martin was, of course, the producer. So you have a technical revolution. You have a revolution in thought. Revolution was the name of the record. You know, I mean, Revolver is meant to signify the spinning round black disc of an old LP, as well as 
a revolution in thought. Jim, as you mentioned, we talked to Jeff Emmerich, who was the uh, chief engineer on the recording sessions for the Revolver record. Basically, his role was the uh, the technical guy. He was the guy who was translating what the Beatles wanted in their heads into sound, the liaison between George Martin, the producer, and the Beatles, the band. We talked to Jeff a little bit about how he recorded Tomorrow Never Knows and about the uh, technical innovations in general about this album. Basically, it was, if I'm going to play a guitar, I don't want it to sound like a guitar. If I play the piano, I don't want it to sound like a piano. And so I'm thinking, what what the hell do I do, you know? (laughs) But, uh, of course... You know, I'm sort of tearing my hair out, and, and when we get into that first cut, you know, on Tomorrow Never Knows, which was was originally Mark One, you know, with the revolving speaker for the vocal. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I was just grabbing at straws, really, and and luckily that that revolving speaker sort of uh, helped me, and and one and John over to to my calls anyway. When you say a rotating speaker, it's the giant Leslie cabinet that that most uh, people use for for Hammond organ. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I thought, well, if we can break into the circuitry, then then perhaps we can feed feed the vocal mic through through into that speaker. So, and that's exactly what we did, mm. uh, <laughs> which was violating every rule of uh, Abbey Road, which is kind of an official kind of place. People wandering around in lab coats, and you had to yeah. wear a, a tie and cufflinks to to work every day, and 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 here you are breaking into the circuitry of a of a Hammond organ to record a vocal, which just wasn't done, right, uh, Jeff? No, no, no. Of course, it wasn't done, and 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 I also had you know certain sounds in my head because I I'd been listening to a lot of American records while I was was mastering records, and and I wanted to try and improve or get get more more sort of adventurous sounds out of the studio than than we were basically getting. And the other thing I was going in for was this closer sound on Ringo's drum kit. And mm. then I had to move the, the bass drum mic closer to get that and take the front skin off and got into trouble, uh, you know, for moving the bass drum mic closer than, than two feet and eventually ended up with a written letter to giving me permission to be able to do that. Tell us about these backward tape loops, which were obviously a big part of Tomorrow Never Knows and the whole album. How did you guys happen upon using those? You know, we all had our own little home tape recorders, and Paul in particular used to go go home and, and experiment, making these little little crazy tape loops on on his uh, m- machine. But the, the backwards thing started where John actually had a re- on his reel to reel because you know we we didn't have cassettes in those days, and and the only way you could take a track home to listen to it was a playback lacquer. Um, uh, which meant waiting for it and to the next day to get, to get it. So John had his reel-to-reel tape machine and being completely non-technical, took the tape home of a, of a rough mix um, and laced it up backwards on the machine and came back the next day and said there was something wrong with the mix, not realising that he'd been playing it backwards. <laughs> so so after, after that, we, you know, we, we, you know that, that's how the, the, the backwards thing started. You know, we used to listen to everything backwards that we, we recorded, you know. Mm. And, and even the, as, as, just as a, as a, well, not really a joke because we were all a bit zany then. We, we, we thought that the Russian language was, was actually English backwards and we got some Russian uh, spoken word and, and played it backwards to see if it was actually English when it was played backwards because <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. We're going to continue with our dissection of one of the great albums of all time, The Beatles' Revolver, and also record reviews from the You Tours record and the first album in 14 years from T-Bone Burnett.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio. We are in the midst of a classic album dissection, the 40th anniversary of the Beatles' Revolver, a record that continues to blow minds 40 years after it was made. Oh, man, that's a song called Rain, which is not on Revolver, but it's relevant to this discussion, Greg. The Beatles are also fooling around with tapes on that song. They're slowing down playback of Ringo's drums, makes everything sound heavier. The B-side of that single was a song called Paperback Writer, which is kind of an anti-authority song, uh, kind of a I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I should be free to do whatever I want song, both of them with this brave new sound. Yeah, absolutely. It's intriguing that at this time, the Beatles were not only expected to put out these albums, but also to put out these singles. And the fact that two classic tracks like this, Rain and Paperback Writer, were left off one of the best albums of all time. Can you imagine what this record would have been like if the single, recorded at the same time as that album, uh, had been put on the record? Unbelievable. (laughs) Well, thankfully, we have CD burners. I mean, what everybody should do is burn themselves a new copy of of Revolver with these two songs, because they are very much of a piece. You know, Ringo's drumming reached another level. Oh, anybody who says that he couldn't play has to listen to Rain. I mean, the stuff that he's doing is just incredibly melodic and sympathetic and very complicated. A a lot of people say that the stuff, uh, you know, just his drumming on Rain alone, there's the dawn of heavy metal. I mean, that heaviness Hmm. is the, you know, that heavy drum sound really was born with Ringo Starr playing on Rain. Slowed down tapes. And I'm not not prone to argue with that. I also think McCartney's bass playing took up another level on this record. Uh, Whereas before, he'd sort of been in in the pocket with Ringo, uh, the more melodic lead bass lines that McCartney really became famous for really originated on this record. Uh, They really fattened up the bass sound. He was modeling it after uh, James Jamerson, the great Motown bassist, where you had lead bass on a lot of those classic Motown singles. McCartney wanted some of that groove and some of that power in in the Beatles recordings, too, and they really you can really hear it on both uh, Paperback Writer and Rain. We wanted to get a musician's take on this and on the experimentation and on, you know, what bursts out of the speakers when you listen to Revolver. So we talked to Matthew Sweet, who, you know, one of the greatest power pop artists of the last uh, 20 years, who uh, has cribbed a lot from Revolver <laughs> on his classic album Girlfriend and, and pretty much on, on everything he's ever recorded. Here is Matthew Sweet talking about uh, the loose feeling on Revolver that he loves so much. What made records great then was not like some sort of expertise. It was more the approach and just the time that it was. Anything could happen, and nobody spent forever beating stuff into the ground. You know, It was just like the spirit of of, you know, something new, and when they would have a good melody and something interesting, they'd just go for it, and there was a seat-of-your-pants kind of feeling about it, and it's really amazing to listen to the record from a viewpoint of how things are played and recorded now, as opposed to how they were then, because things are so loose and (laughs) mistake-ridden that we're, like, amateurish compared to now, and it gave it this wonderful feeling, you know, and that's kind of 
kind of sad. You, you almost, I have to think that'll come back or something, you know. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines So we sailed up to the sun Till we found the sea of green And we lived beneath the waves In our yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine Yellow submarine Ah, Ringo, a great drummer, and, well, he, he <laughs> tried to sing. Uh, you know, you would think, Greg, that a song like Yellow Submarine is, is just this whimsical children's ditty, but nowhere on Revolver do we get too far away from this quest to alter your consciousness chemically. Albert Goldman, Lennon's controversial biographer, contended that, that uh, John actually wrote this song about yellow sub-shaped nembutals. <laughs> about drugs. But even if you don't buy that the lyrics are about drugs, Greg, certainly uh, sonically, it's a trippy song. No doubt. And uh, Jeff Emmerich had some great stories about how they recorded this song. I didn't get the impression from here, there, and everywhere your book, Jeff, that there was a stranger moment than Lennon deciding that he had to sound as if he was singing underwater for Yellow Submarine. And in fact, he wanted you to record him singing underwater. <laughs> well, well, exactly. I mean, that, that was, you know, what, what, I mean, I'm running around the studio floor sort of tearing my hair out. You know, there's all, there's all the other people there, you know. So, so in, in the end, I thought, well, you, John, you can't do that. I mean, he'd been blowing and singing, singing into walls from bubbles and God knows what else. <laughs> So I thought, well, the next best thing, let's just, just out of desperation, was to try and and put a microphone in 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 a in a bottle of water and uh, <laughs> just sing, just sing to the to, to the, the glass glass milk bottle. But we had to protect the uh, slim condenser microphone, which had you know like 240 volts running through it. Uh, yeah, electricity. I don't know much about recording engineering, but electricity no, right. and water don't mix, right? Yeah, right. Exa- exactly. Yeah. So, so I was thinking, well, what, what can we put it in? And Mal Evans, you know, produced the the, uh, the condom out of his wallet, and I uh, put put the mic in that, and then sunk that in the milk bottle. So, and, that, and that's what what we did. Well, I can't. I don't think I ended up using it. It was just a dull, yeah, sort of sort of sound. But I mean, John, John. I'm I mean, telling you, Jeff. If you if you had that used condom today uh, on yeah. eBay, man, you'd be set for the next year. I'm telling oh, sure. you. Yeah. Right. He couldn't understand why you couldn't directly inject his vocal like you could a bass guitar or a, gu- a guitar late, later on, mm. uh, in, you know, during our, our pr- recording. And until George Martin explained that he'd have to have, have an operation and have a jack jack socket implanted in his neck, but that was only <laughs> said as a joke. You know, he, he was so ignorant of, of stuff like that. You know, one of the things too that I think uh, you you sort of pioneered with this record, Revolver, uh, Jeff, was just simply where you placed the microphones inside Ringo's bass drum and close micing. Yeah. Yeah. The, the string section on, uh, yeah. on Eleanor Rigby. Did you have any idea yeah. how these experiments were going to turn out before you attempted them? The, the, well, the Eleanor Rigby thing, string sound was, was a sound that you know I discussed with Paul and we wanted this close sound. And of course, when I went in very close onto the string players with those microphones, which was, of course, it was a, a double string quartet, so there was eight, eight players there. Uh, they'd they'd never been mic'd as close as that. And of course, the, some of the guys, as we would say in the back desk, who weren't as good as the 
good of players as the guys in the front desks. You know, used to sort of slide their chairs away from the mics, but that you know, I I obviously could hear what was going on. I had to keep going downstairs, and and just getting them to move back in or move the <laughs> mic closer. And, to, and and in the end, George Martin had to tell them to stop doing it, and because we were after a particular sound. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been it's in a dream this was not done on rock records you had a, a, a no. basically a voice backed up by eight an eight piece string section that, that was unusual for a, a rock recording in those days and that's it, right uh, McCartney uh, was obviously looking for something different I think there was a conversation with George Martin may have suggested strings and, and I believe Paul was thinking, oh, Mantovani, no, you know, the, the, yeah. you know, the, 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 the lush sort of s- string sound. And then I, I guess, we, you know, the, the, the close miking thing, you know, came, came from, from those conversations. Right now, that song is just—it's part of the air. I mean, we are so used to hearing that song, and it's wonderful, and it's timeless, and it's been recorded by, by numerous artists. But imagine this coming out in 1966 on the same album with "Tomorrow Never Knows," uh, a voice and eight string players as a rock record. I mean, <laughs> right there, you have like what? Huh? It's revolutionary sonically, and you know McCartney's lyric. I mean, there's an incredible amount of empathy for these sad, lonely people who have been cut out of society. A lot of McCartney's songs, I think, are about sort of these everyday people. Whereas Lennon was clearly exploring his inner world and saying, "Okay, you lonely everyday people, here is the way out of your mundane existence." Where McCartney was describing the mundane existence, Lennon was saying, "Okay, here's the here's the path to transcendence. Follow me." What is George Harrison doing? He had been sort of the junior member of the Beatles songwriting team for uh, a decade, really, since he met them, uh, you know, in, in Liverpool in, in the 50s. But Revolver, he gets three songs on the album. Which is unprecedented in the Beatles catalog. Three Harrison songs on Revolver. Uh, some of his very best work. Taxman, Love You Too, I Want to Tell You. You know, George always has this rep as the uh, saintly, most hippie, most mystical member of the Beatles. Let's remember that here's George, and here's the Beatles for the first time on record, openly criticizing the government you know and what is george griping about that they're taking money out of his pocket (laughs) and the government's response is don't ask me what i want it for george doesn't want to pay taxes so george has some earthly concerns in addition to the mystical well absolutely these were just regular guys as uh jeff emmerich sort of reminded us you know he's in the studio every day with these guys and one of the great things about emmerich's book uh here there and everywhere is how he demythologizes uh the beatles and emmerich talked to us a little bit about that when you see this whole thing of beatles Right. You know, the mountaintop, the paradigm. I mean, how do you feel about it? For you, there were a couple of guys, you know, Lennon could be snarky to you and kind of nasty. Paul was kind of sucking up in politic. The other two guys are quiet. I mean, they were just guys that you worked with. 
Well, right, exactly. I mean, this is a story of just human beings make, making making music in the studio with all its problems. And, you know, George Harrison didn't come down from the sky playing magical guitar solos. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and young kids now who feel, I, I can't possibly, you know, learn the guitar because you have to, you know, it, you, you just play the guitar. You have to learn. And George learned, you know, and it's a story of George learning, you know, which I, th- yeah. I think is great. If you drive a car, car, tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your Now, interesting little factoid, uh, Harrison played most of the guitar solos, most of the main guitar parts on the Beatles songs, but that was, in fact, uh, a Harrison song where the main guitar part, the solo, that biting, famous guitar solo, was not played by George Harrison, but by Paul McCartney. Her- you know, amplifying Emmerich's point about uh, Harrison uh, being the junior member and sort of growing into his role in the Beatles, he struggled for about nine hours trying to play a guitar solo that would satisfy him and, and the rest of the Beatles. And McCartney goes... Let me have a crack at that. One take. There's the solo. Harrison's yeah. kind of drooping in the corner. Oh, yeah, that that was pretty if, good, Paul. If George had only been in uh, Guns N' Roses with Axl Rose, he could have taken 15 years, gotten it right, you know? Uh, nevertheless, this album recorded uh, fairly quickly. In a couple of months, in the spring of 1966, it comes out in August 1966. Now, I hear this record, uh, and every time I play it, and I've been playing it since I was a kid, I hear it in a new way. I mean, it never gets old. It never sounds dated. It could have been made in 2006 or 1966. Yeah, it's it's still inspiring people today. Uh, that's the amazing thing about it. I think as a reference point for musicians, I mean, the fetish that exists around what Jeff Emmerich and George Martin and the Beatles did in the recording studio around the Revolver sessions is just, uh, that's a cottage industry in itself. How do they get those sounds? How do they do that? Today you could do that in a second on Pro Tools, but it doesn't have that same feel. We promised you a way to listen to Revolver with whole new ears, and our ace producer, Matt Spiegel, Matt Fingers Spiegel, (laughs) has put together this montage of the songs on Revolver in order, covered by some of the hundreds of artists who've covered them. What other radio show are you going to hear Stevie Ray Vaughan, Ray Charles, Bong Water, Earth, Wind, and Fire, <laughs> and Government Mule in the same mix doing Beatles covers? Covering uh, the Beatles. Right here, Sound Opinions, the world's only rock and roll talk show. Revolver done in order by a mix of artists. If you want to know the names of the artists and the songs that they're covering, go to soundopinions.org. That is our handy website that has all the information you need to know about the show. In addition, that is your forum for expressing your opinions about Sound Opinions.
listening to sound opinions from chicago public radio when we return we have reviews of the new albums from t-bone burnett and the rock and tours plus a desert island jukebox pick from greg cott Palestine, Texas, that is what T-Bone Burnett is singing about, one of the uh, many songs on his new album, The True False Identity. T-Bone Burnett's first album in 14 years. Most people probably know this guy not as an artist or a singer or songwriter, but as a producer, most famously for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? T-Bone Burnett put together that project, was not only a huge hit at the movie box office, but ended up winning a whole bunch of Grammy Awards for... uh, basically reintroducing bluegrass and mountain soul music to the mainstream of America. I mean, what a feat that is. Ralph Stanley up there at the Grammy Awards singing Oh Death, 
in front of a nationally televised audience. An amazing moment in pop culture history. And oh, T-Bone, absolutely. T-Bone Burnett was the guy who sort of engineered that whole thing. Well, in all of his productions, you know, for Los Lobos, Elvis Costello, Gillian Welsh, his former spouse, Sam Phillips, he's known as a guy who gets this great stripped-down Spartan sound in the studio, but at the same time really captures an artist's personality and quirks. Yeah, he's done some terrific work over the years, some really fine cult records, some hugely selling records as well. At one time, he had a very active recording career, which is anthologized in a new two-CD set that has just come out, basically talking about the recordings that he did from the mid-'70s to the early-'90s when he essentially stopped recording. Now he's gone back in the studio with a stellar band that includes Jim Keltner, one of the great drummers. He's played on countless sessions over the last 35, 40 years. Mark Rebo, great guitar player, known for some of his uh, side session work with people like Tom Waits. T-Bone basically going in the studio with a band in two one-week-long sessions that produced the record The True-False Identity. This record is really not so much about the live recording sessions, which were done very quickly, but the mix afterward, using the studio as another instrument. And you can very much hear it on this record and the song we're going to play next, Seven Times Hotter Than Fire, which sort of takes traditional sounds, T-Bone very much in the vein of taking country, early soul, early gospel music, early blues, and then sort of screwing around with it in the recording studio and making it sound sort of modern and edgy. You can hear it very much here on this song. It's taking a Bo Diddley beat and reinventing it a bit with seven times hotter than fire in Sound Opinions. I've never been closer and I've never been farther That's T-Bone Burnett, seven times hotter than fire from his new album, The True False Identity. Mr. Cott, I hope you're ready to rumble, because I have some problems with T-Bone, and they're problems I have with two other artists that you love very much, and we've gone over this in the past on Sound Opinions. I'll reference them. Mark Rebo, the guitarist who's on T-Bone's new album, works with one Tom Waits. I have some similar problems here in that Waits has always just struck me as a guy who's jumping up and down in the corner screaming, look how weird I am! I'm freaky! (laughs) And that's exactly what T-Bone is doing. Daniel Lenoir is a producer who, like T-Bone Burnett, both of these men's resumes are impeccable as producers. But producer, heal thyself. Perhaps you should think about not recording yourself. It's not such a good idea because all the charms that T-Bone gets out of other productions for other artists where he just creates this great sonic space, very simple, and still somehow manages to shine that spotlight on the artist's inherent quirkiness with... His own music, it's all about the quirks. The lyrics are this kind of absurdist Dada poetry thing, and just when he has an interesting groove going, he'll ruin it with some silly overdub. You know, he's a born-again Christian. He's very devout in his faith, and that's rubbing up against this other political preachiness. I hate this record. It's a (laughs) ponderous ponderous thing wow, and they, anybody who's trying so hard to be this weird should not also simultaneously be this boring 
Oh. This is also a very sleepy record. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, Jim, based on what you just said, whether you actually listen to this record. I mean, Too many times. I want those four hours back. Well, the Christianity and stuff that you're referencing, I'm, I'm not really sure I'm hearing any of that. If anything, Blinded by darkness? It's very anything, Old Testament. If anything, he's very disturbed about the merging of religion into politics in the modern world. And uh, I think that the lyrics are very clear. In fact, they're very funny. One of the things I love the most about this record is there's almost like a gag with every line. It's, 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 a, it's a funny, humorous record. T-Bone's not the greatest singer in the world. I think he recognizes that. Neither is Bob Dylan. But I, I love the way this guy is using his voice as another sound element in this record. The fact that he's taking things like rap I mean, in Palestine, Texas, and sort of reinventing it. You know, this, this Texas mm. guy reinventing rap. The Bo Diddley beat reinventing <laughs> not, it seven but times. But not doing it very well. Oh, I think he's doing a great job with it. Uh, oh, it's just eclectic the, dabbling for the sake of like, gee, aren't I inventive? I do all this stuff. No, yeah, And he's you, not doing any of it can, well. You can hear these very traditional forms here, and they're sort of being messed up in the mix, very much what the Beatles were doing. The Beatles are taking, you know, R&B, blues, and soul and saying, hey, let's ma- let's mess these up a little bit in the recording studio. It's not a new idea. I'm surprised you poo-pooing it here on, on, on T-Bone Burnett's record. When I think this is one of the freshest-sounding rock records, and I make a distinction here, I think rock records to me have been sounding really stale lately because the production ideas are so outdated and so flat. And T-Bone, I think, is going into the studio with the idea here, Let's reinvent these forms. Let's do something different with them. We just played a couple tracks for people, and I'll, I'll rest with people listening to that and deciding whether they want to buy it, burn it, or trash it. Uh, Which brings us to our rating scale. Here on Sound Opinions, we rate these albums as a buy it, a burn it, or a trash it. I, Greg, I really dislike this record, and I know how much you love T-Bone, and so I really spent a lot of time with it. I don't get it. This is a trash it record. Yeah, I think you're way off, Jim. I think it's one of the most inventive sounding records you're going to hear this year in any genre. For that reason alone, I think people should hear it. And then, meanwhile, they'll discover some pretty cool songs, some self-deprecating songs, some really funny, darkly humorous songs for, for dark times. I think it's a buy it record all the way. Listening to Steady As She Goes, the first single from the debut album by the Raconteurs, Broken Boy Soldiers. Debut album from this particular band, although certainly not the first recording from anybody involved. Greg, this is what, uh, this is an old phrase that I borrowed from my friend Bill Wyman is called a busman's holiday. <laughs> a working vacation. You have a group here that some people are calling a super group. I don't know if that's legit. One guy is certainly a superstar. Jack White, as the leader of the White Stripes, is the head of one of the most influential and beloved and best-selling alternative rock bands of the last decade. You know, he's taking some time off and playing with a fellow Detroit native, Brendan Benson, who has been a uh, long-simmering underground hero on the power pop scene. This is certainly elevating him to a whole new audience. Plus the rhythm section of bassist Jack Lawrence and drummer Patrick Keeler of Cincinnati's band The Greenhorns. They also played with White when he made that record with Loretta Lynn. So you have these guys hanging out together in Nashville and making this record. The White Stripes, you know, are a band that's devoted to the minimalist aesthetic. Very simple. 
Guitar, vocal, Meg White's pounding drums, and trying to see how much they can do with how little. This is a much more expansive genre that they're fooling around with here. Obviously, the Paisley pop psychedelic end of Garage, as opposed to the blues rock end of Garage. Let's listen to a song here and get into whether we like it. Um, the Raconteur's Intimate Secretary. sound much like Jack White and the White Stripes, does it? That's Intimate Secretary from the Raconteurs. Jack White is the most famous name on this record, but I think you can clearly hear the influence of his sidekick, Brendan Benson, who shares the lead vocal duties and the songwriting on this record with White. It's a real democracy. They're cutting well, all the work say. down the middle. That's what they say. White loves to dominate everything he works on, and in this case, it uh, does seem like he shared the wealth a little bit. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's true. I think Jack has always played very nicely with others. Whether <laughs> whether it's no, it's true. Whether it's giving you know Loretta Lynn the spotlight with that, oh, sure. that wonderful Van Leer Rose, or let's not forget where did we first meet Jack White as the drummer for the goofy country combo Goober and the Peas. <laughs> I, I think he's always played nicely with other people and elevated whoever he's working with in any context. Well, that's uh, that's very nice of you to support Jack White in that way, Jim. But I have to say, <laughs> I am uh, surprised, frankly, that White deferred as much as he did on this record. I don't think he, on his own he would have gotten into these melancholy ballads, these breezy kind of songs like Together and Yellow Sun, or the one we just heard, Intimate Secretary. Oh, I don't uh, buy that. A- at the same time, there are clear cases of, you know, this guy loves his classic rock. There's a song called Store-Bought Bones where the opening organ directly references Deep Purple. The midsection references Led Zeppelin's rock and roll. Now there's the Jack White I know. He's been accused of ripping off Led Zeppelin. He probably would freely admit, yeah, I love Led Zeppelin and I'll rip them off whenever I can. He does that a few times on this record. Steady As She Goes, the first single. Man, I don't know why Joe Jackson's ears haven't perked up and said, wait a minute, isn't that the baseline from Is She Really Going Out With Him? Again, if I w- would accuse White of one thing, it's that he is pretty slavish in his imitation of 60s, 70s, up through early new wave classic rock and pop. And I don't hear him veering very far from that strategy here. Well, no, He no, has no, a no, fine no. collaborator in Brendan Benson, but what White is essentially doing is recreating an era. And, and not really doing a whole lot more with it other than writing some really catchy pop tunes. But that's uh, all that it. matters, Greg. When you're dealing with the garage rock 
genre, whether it's the psychedelic pop end of it or the more bluesy rock end of it or just the pure raw garage end of it. The point isn't the sound. You know, yeah, it's all been done, okay? And here he's paying homage to the raspberries and the zombies and the kinks instead of, you know, the standells and Led Zeppelin or whatever. Originality isn't the point. The point is, have you got the songs? And there are like 10 great hooks in every song here. There's 10 tracks on this album. The whole thing whizzes by in 33 minutes. It is an explosion of energy. You know, Benson and White are sharing the vocals almost line to line. I don't think that he's coasting through this project like you seem to think. I think it just shows another side to Jack White that the White Stripes, you know, because of its purposeful minimalist aesthetic where everything is kept very, very spare, we're not going to see it in that setting. And this is just showing what a brilliant, brilliant songwriter this guy is. Wow. The brilliance that you're hearing, I don't hear at all. Uh, you know, this <laughs> guy's... You left that with T-Bone, This guy's a real competent songwriter. There's no doubt about it. Some nice tunes here. I don't understand why you have to own this record, though, because oh, I've got I've got oh. a dozen records like this in my collection already. Yeah, you know, yeah, to yeah. my you know, mind... no such thing as too many great songs. The, the fact le- that you can walk around singing all these songs is what why you own this record. I think... This is a buy-it record. There's no way. Jack White is a talented guy. I think he's selling himself short. I wish he had pushed himself as hard as he did on that last White Stripes record. Here, I just feel like he's in a 60s cover band, a 70s cover band. So what are you telling people? At best, this is a Burn It record. I don't think anybody should have to buy it. Ah, man. Buy two copies of this and trade in your T-Bone Burnett. That's (laughs) what you ought to do. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Every week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn in popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox, playing a song we cannot live without. Mr. Cott, it is your week. Jim, this was a tough one because I wanted to pick a song by this artist, and I was having a very difficult time narrowing it down to just one. To my mind, uh, Missy Elliott, born Melissa Arnett Elliott in 1971 in Portsmouth, Virginia, has been the top singles artist of the last 10 years. And one of the reasons I say that is that she is extending this whole notion of the avant-garde and of turning the recording studio into an instrument that has been a theme of tonight's show, I might uh, mention, uh, with Revolver and the Beatles, and to an extent T-Bone Burnett and with his new record. She has taken that to the ultimate degree with her partner in crime, Tim Mosley, Timbaland. To my mind, Missy and Timbaland are the great production duo of our time. And it's reflected in their singles. The fact that they've been able to make great pop music and yet still blow minds with the production, to me, really is the uh, embodiment of what the Beatles were all about in, in 1966 with Revolver. Let's make great pop music, but let's push it into this adventurous terrain where we're taking people's heads somewhere new. Great singles down the road. The Rain, Pass That Dutch, Get Your Freak On, Make It Hot, all great songs. I'm going to focus on Work It today. And again, if you just focus on a lyric sheet, you go, oh, that's kind of nonsense. Well, that's kind of the point. She's having a lot of fun with words. She's talking about being this freaky gal seducing a guy. Okay, tired theme, but the way she does it is with an incredible amount of fun and inventiveness. Just the sound of this record is mind-blowing. The elephant's wail and the way that's sort of incorporated into (laughs) into this song. The fact that there seems to be like a, a conversation going on in the background all the time while she's singing. 
the chorus is done in reverse. We talked about the reverse tape loops mm-hmm. that the Beatles were uh, using. The hook, the chorus in this song is sung backwards. I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it, sung backwards. It's one of those little hooks that you cannot get out of your mind. Nonsense turned into a great pop hook. And at the end of the song, she sort of sums it up. She says, remember when hip-hop used to be about fun? It wasn't about gangsters and about looking hot like a prostitute. It was about getting out on the dance floor and having fun. And that's, I think, where Missy Elliott has sort of restored in hip-hop is that sense of fun, that sense of play, the fact that you can dance to these songs as well as swim around for weeks with them in your head and in between the headphones and get taken to someplace new. So Missy Elliott, one of the great producers along with Timbaland of our time, and here's a great example of her work on the song Work It. Glass of water, oh. boy, oh boy, it's good to know ya. Is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. It's your permitted That is my Desert Island jukebox. Work it from Missy Elliott. Nice choice. Thanks, Jim. Uh, it was fun to hear that again. I cannot get enough of that song. And next week we're going to have an artist in a similarly inventive vein. One Lonnie Rashid Lynn. Southside native of Chicago, who has turned into an international rap star by the name of Common. Plus, we're going to look at new albums by Mission of Burma and a very controversial recording. Yes, I'm going to say these words in the same sentence. Controversial and Dixie Chicks. <laughs> you got to tune in for that. Let's uh, let's say some thank yous on the way out. Mr. Cott, as always, Tori Southside Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel showing his production prowess uh, on that Beatles montage and everything else. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our beloved associate producers. Thank you to Dino Armiros for legal help, Joe Dassault for technical assistance, and our new partners, Jim Russell of American Public Media and Steve Nelson of The Current. Thanks for having having us the current and we'll be talking at you next week I like the way you work that ladies you should know how to work that <laughs>